On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride this week is Will the Thrill. I have my beverage. My pinky is out. Greetings and salutations. Are you drinking tea? Or just like no, fancy having a delightful red wine. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I made pork chops for dinner and went well with the red wine. So, okay. All right. And then we have our storyteller, of course, for this magnum opus on his behalf. That is TJ2, the deuce. <sighs> are you are you kneeling at a trough? Howdy. <laughs> what, are you, what are you drinking? Well, I thought if, if Will was going to be doing, you know, pinky raised red wine in the goblet that I would just drink out of a bowl like a dog. <laughs> just cover all our bases, you know. <laughs> something for everybody, just, folks, on the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast. That's right. <laughs> right. We had something for everyone. Just tea today. Oh, wow. I'm guessing you're still at work, eh? Yes. That's a big ride joke. I've never consumed uh, intoxicating spirits my place of business. <laughs> that would be unprofessional. Yeah. What the nerve. You- Drank the last time I was there. Very thought has defended my sensibilities. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember that. Sorry. All right. Well, I'm going to butcher this person's name, but we do sadly have someone who became podcast eligible this week. That was ABBA's long-term guitarist at Lassie Wellender. I believe that's how you say his name. Passed away. Yeah. You mentioned that the other day. And you like ABBA. Yeah, I love ABBA. I also didn't realize that they had any instruments. So that goes to show how surface level, I guess, my love for ABBA is. But I will watch Mamma Mia. Claps and magic? (laughs) Well, it's disco. So I just assumed it was all computers that fit into a room. I don't know how music works. I have a podcast. No, people actually had to play... No, no, I'm sorry. In the 1970s, they didn't have computers. They they actually had to play their shitty music. Don't you understand? Not that ABBA's <laughs> were shitty. I just hey, ABBA is amazing. ABBA is probably they the were great. best the best thing that came out of the disco they were, era. No, they were they were they're, they're, it's those are some undeniably great songs. Yeah, I mean, there's an ABBA for every mood. You've got Waterloo. You've mm. got which, by the way, I've been singing since we got our dog. Because uh, Lydia couldn't escape if I wanted to. Which is but interesting because I'm doing the going the other way with Waylon going, Lydia played the electric bass. <laughs> Which so, makes sense. Not at all, but. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, so that was that was our, our one that passed this week, which is, of course, always incredibly sad, especially when it's somebody that I love. Yeah. It's actually as as this airs, it's probably two weeks ago now, but still worthy of being mentioned for sure. Actually, no, I am I'm stand corrected. Ian Bryerson, guitarist for the Alan Parsons Project, and Kate Bush passed away at the age of sixty five as well. Wow. So yeah, this is the problem that we have is that we have somebody that's running our Facebook page that is so on it that jeez, oh, I don't even that we've largely stopped paying attention. Yes. <laughs> We, we just we just pretty much trust that she'll do the job and we we don't really do anything. And she's incredible. So thank you, Thea, as, as often as we say. Uh, and, and she also appreciated that you fired her, TJ. So there you go. 
I, I hired her back. God. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, if that's all the business that we have to take care of now, I think right now is the perfect time for our pre-show sponsor break. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. And we are back. All right. So again, for the fourth time, I'm going to hand these reins over to my big brother and he is going to Tell us a little story, and I can only imagine that this is going to be totally tame, not slap nuts at all, not a drug in sight. Am I right? It's going to be very much like going to a Bible school and auditing a class on Deuteronomy. Oh, delightful. Uh, Deuteronomy was a cat in uh, Cats. I did not know that. <laughs> I think T.S. Eliot borrowed that from the Bible, just saying. <laughs> so this is part four of our series on Waylon Jennings. Part one was early life. There was some wild stuff in it, but it was kind of early life. Part two was incredibly sad. That's the day the music died. Part three was sort of light. This week is nuts. And next week we push the holy crap, this is crazy button and we don't take our finger off of it pretty much until the very end. So, And, and that's why um, we now are going to have, have a thing on the beginning have, of every episode. Right. And, and trust me, we're going to earn them. I do want to mention couple of quick corrections. Back in part one, in the very opening, I said that one of Waylon's children had Muhammad Ali as a godfather. Uh, that is actually not correct. So Waylon was friends with Muhammad Ali, which we'll get into much later in the series. They, they were really good friends. And Muhammad Ali was at the christening of Shooter Jennings. And there's a picture you can find, of, I believe, of him holding Baby Shooter. He was not named the Godfather, however. Uh, Johnny Cash was, so I did want to correct that. I said when Waylon was a baby, you know, they lived in a two-room shack, basically, with a dirt floor, that his mom had to sit him on top of like the stove to keep the rats away from him when he was a baby. And mouth got in front of brain, and I said gas stove. They obviously didn't have a gas stove in 1937. <laughs> It was just like a pot-bellied wood stove. So well, they also didn't wanted to have make those two corrections. They also didn't have electricity either, so. Correct. And one other thing, this isn't a correction. It's sort of a different theory. I said in part one, when he married his first wife, Maxine, they went to New Mexico to get married and did so because they didn't have to take a blood test. And I theorized, you know, they were broke and you had to pay for a blood test. And that might have played into it, but 
I thought about it. And, you know, the only reason they were getting married is because they thought Maxine was pregnant uh, and, a blood gotcha. test, and a blood test would have revealed that she was to the doctor and their families and everything, which is not what they wanted. So mm-hmm. that probably had more to do. Now, she wasn't, as it turned out, her period started like two hours after their wedding, but <laughs> they thought she was. So that's probably more why they chose to go to New Mexico and skip the blood yeah. test. But anyway, I think that's everything. Now, a question. Did you figure all this stuff out on your own or did you get a strongly worded letter that I have been shielded from? A strongly worded letter. That, nope. I, I, I actually figured that out on, by myself. Yeah. Oh, good. Self-policing. Excellent. I haven't gotten a good, strongly worded letter in quite a while. I fired a few off, but I, I haven't received one in quite a while. <laughs> and we have one minor little, one little kind of fun programming announcement I think we can make now because we've seen, I think we firmed this up. We, of course, have some good friends that do a podcast called Yeah, Uh-Huh, Phil, Lisa, mm. and Aaron. Yes. And I had this weird idea. You know how, like, and I guess maybe they still do it. I just don't watch enough network TV to know, but they would do like these cross promotional things for characters from other shows would show up in shows other than their own. Yeah. Like the Fonz on Mork and Mindy or Sophia Petrillo on Empty Nest or like George Jetson would drop a deuce in Barney Rubble's toilet, you know, stuff like that. Okay. I thought, Hey, wouldn't it be fun if for one of our episodes, we had our friends from yeah, uh uh-huh, join us and at least at least one of us, or, or all of us, if you two want to do it too, are going to join them on a common theme. I won't, I won't reveal just yet what it is. There's one particular landmark album we're probably going to do a whole episode on, and they are going to dedicate one of their Aaron's, what does he call it, Aaron's Audio Audibles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. They're going to do an episode on that same album. So they're going to join us, we're going to join them, and that, that, should, that should be fun. Excellent. Especially when y'all hear the content of said episode here, because it is the yeah. one thing I learned today is so crazy. I want to tell y'all, but I have to hold it back because I want genuine reaction, <laughs> and shock and dismay. Fair. Yeah. And if you guys so, uh, can head over to listen to their podcast, it's yeah. Uh-huh. I'll throw a link down for their podcast in the show notes of course, but Phil, Lisa, and Aaron are some of the most amazing people that we we have had the pleasure of crossover with, and they have not been on our show in a, uh, what is it called, formal format yet. They hop on to our birthday episode, and so those are some of the most right. learned folk, and we, we truly love them, so go listen to their podcast. They're amazing. They're great, yeah. Absolutely, so check them out, but that, that's going to be fun, and we're looking forward to that, but now we can uh, proceed with part four of the late great Waylon Jennings. All right. So in our last episode, we covered Waylon Jennings' rise to popularity at an Arizona nightclub called JD's and his unfortunate introduction to pills, a relationship that would last longer than his first marriage, which we saw in last week, or that uh, to his new bride, Lynn. Two other relationships were already beginning, one personal and the other musical, and that is where we pick things up. So we told you last week that artist Bobby Bear had stopped to watch Waylon perform at JD's and had heard a couple of his songs on local radio, and he was totally blown away. After he left the show, he stopped at a payphone and he made a phone call. He followed up that call in person. Quote, I probably shouldn't tell you this because he plays the same kind of material I do, but this guy Waylon Jennings deserves a real shot on a major label, Bear said. Who he was saying it to was artist, producer, and executive 
Chet Atkins, ah. known in Nashville as God's right hand. Ah. The gentleman guitar player. Huh? Right, exactly. If that phenomenal guitar player. And he wasn't the only artist to speak to Atkins on Waylon's behalf, either Skeeter Davis and a few other people had. So Waylon was sitting at home one day when his phone rang. Quote, I could hear this real gentle, kind voice on the other end of the phone saying, we sure would like for you to record for RCA. Would you be interested? Waylon was more than interested. He said that RCA was the label any country artist dreamed of signing with, dating all the way back to Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family, both of whom were RCA. There was just one problem, that being that Waylon was technically signed to A&M Records, which was then a small independent label. So he would call the two bosses there, Jerry Moss and Herb Alpert, yes, that Herb Alpert of Tijuana Brass fame, and asked to be let out of his contract. Now, he'd done a couple of singles with them, none of which had gone anywhere. And Alpert had visions of Waylon being a more pop-flavored crossover artist, and that's not what Waylon wanted at all, and he didn't think it was working. He said that Jerry and Herb had been nothing but great to him. They were both very kind and generous people, so he hated to break ties with them, but it was something he felt like he needed to do. Jerry said that he wanted to make things work, but he also said that he liked Waylon and he didn't want to stand in his way if this is what he wanted to do. Herb Alpert wanted the chance to match RCA's offer, and he even offered Waylon a percentage stake in the company up to 8% reportedly, which in the long run would have netted him incredible wealth. You have wow. to think, A&M at this point doesn't have the Carpenters. They don't have Procol Harum. They don't have any of the big artists who would come to record for A&M. It's a small, struggling, independent label. But if Waylon had taken that, his career wow. may not have taken off because he would have been doing the kind of music that made him famous ultimately. But boy, he would have been so rich. <laughs> he could have bought so many pills with that money. He's Good already going to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I was gonna say, It sounds like that's going to happen anyway. And he does that anyway. Quote, I hate to give up, Waylon said Herb told him. I really think I could do it with you. I believe I can. Still, he too gave his blessing when Waylon said recording with RCA was something that he wanted to give a try. So he wouldn't move to Nashville full-time just yet, but he and his band bought a flower delivery car from a funeral home and loaded up their gear in it. Waylon's wife, Lynn, would not be going, but his new love, Barbara Rude, would. Dude. They didn't want the Rude. Well, R R O O D. No, I said dude. Rude, rude, not 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 rude. Rude, rude dude, rude. whatever. Like, no, stop putting it in places that don't belong in the places that you are <laughs> sticking it in. Stop it. There might be more that <laughs> Oh god. Yeah, um, they didn't want the relationship to be known at that point, so they technically had separate rooms while they stayed in Nashville, but not really. Um, Waylon spent three days in the studio in Nashville in March of 1965 recording songs for his first album. One of those songs was Stop the World and Let Me Off. As he was recording it, it dawned on Waylon at a certain point, holy crap, I'm playing my guitar in front of Chet Atkins because Chet was one of the session <laughs> and he was allowing Waylon to play guitar on this particular song. Waylon played and sang back up on a couple of Bobby Bear songs for a few extra bucks before he left town and those two would remain friends for the rest of their lives. Atkins, for his part, said that he knew he had something big on his hands. He said that Waylon had an amazing voice, a great personality, and was a good-looking guy. He knew a star when he saw one, and he believed that he had one in Waylon. The band headed back to Arizona, and they resumed playing at JD's for a while. Waylon would be summoned by Atkins back to Nashville a couple of times more between then and early 1966. He recorded a lot of songs, some of which would be on his debut album, some of which were B-sides, and some of which RCA would randomly plop down in the middle of future albums. 
country albums at that point were mostly collections of individual songs, not full cohesive works, which is something that would start to grade on Waylon as time went along. His first three singles on RCA were released in 1965, well before the 1966 release of his first RCA album. In fact, one song that was on his second album was released as a single in 1965. Waylon had released eight singles from 1959 to early 1965, none of which had ever charted. But his first RCA single was That's the Chance I'll Have to Take, which did hit number 49. And then came Stop the World, which finally gave Waylon, who was now 28 years old and who had been doing this for 12, 13 years at this point, his first top 40 hit. It reached number 16 on the country charts. Let's hear that one now. This is Waylon Jennings with his first ever top 40 hit, Stop the World. Stop the world and let me off. Stop the world and let me on My dreams are shattered, don't you see? Now you no longer care for me I miss the wonder of your kiss How could you leave me here like this? And we're back. All right. It's Again, it's so short. It almost reminds me of like a Gene Autry. I mean, it's like almost a throwback to much older country. Yeah, it was a good song and everything, but it sounded like it was very much what was in vogue at the time. And, you know, that's a lot of what they did then was just try to copy what was popular and a hit at the time. It sounded like Eddie Arnold or Jim Reeves, like some country crooner type mm. to me. Yeah. yeah. It, still, it still doesn't pop. We still, this still doesn't feel like Wayland yet. It's not there. It is not there. Right. But no, okay. That being said, because at this I do, point they're still trying to, to make him. Yeah. I I like it. I yeah. It's a small bite, but it's a good bite. Yeah. There's you know it's a good song and he sings it very well. It's just if you if you came to this series you know without a, a deep knowledge of his early catalog, some of this is probably kind of surprising to you. I would I would imagine. Yeah. 
So by April of 1966, it was time for Whelan to make the move east on a full-time basis. His first album was out. It was called Folk Country, which he said was RCA's attempt to pull in some folk music bands into the country audience. Now, he didn't really mind that label necessarily, since he said country was the original folk music. But he would be less and less fond of music being labeled as time went on, as you will see. So word got around Arizona that he was leaving. And on his farewell night, there were lines out the door and down the street. J.D.'s packed over 2,000 people into the second floor uh, listening room, which was only equipped to handle around 1,500 or so. So they were Uh bulging at the same, like literally fire marshal at the door kind of a situation, probably. Uh He was going out on top and he was leaving the morning more just as his friend and mentor, Buddy Holly, had told him he should do. He actually asked his, by this time, friend, Willie Nelson, for some advice before leaving for Nashville. Willie had already made a few trips to Nashville. When he told Willie what he was making every week at JD's, Willie said, quote, hell no, don't leave. And if you do, I want your job. <laughs> because Waylon was doing Waylon was doing quite well financially at JD's. He was taking home 1500 plus a week, which in 1965 was a really good living. That's a lot so of cash, yeah. It was. That was a lot of money to leave on the table, but this is what you do, you know. You pull up stakes and you go chase that dream. And he left. Even though he had three albums released in 1966, he said it would be a while before money started coming in. And then there would only be so much, since most country albums at that time only sold like in the tens of thousands. Country was not a big album format. Just, you know, there, there were songs that sold bigger than that, you know, singles, but, but albums didn't sell great. So if you sold 40,000, 50,000, that was, that was pretty good. So that's, that's also not going to net you a lot of royalties. So, but but also, he's only going to make so much. At this point, are they actually keeping track? Like, it, this isn't there. There's no what is the song? Well, that's the other thing. Yes, I sound, sound uh, scans. Sound scan. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're thirty years from sound scan basically, and you know, it would actually probably behoove the record company to tell you you weren't selling as many. Yeah. Is they pocket the money? Yeah. I was going to say it could have been yeah. Yeah, I hate it. Well, we didn't sell 40,000 of that one, and God knows what they actually sold, but that's what the artists were told anyway. But not to worry, Waylon and his band had booking agent Lucky Moeller on their side, if you want to say that he was on their side. This was the typical life of a country singer. Lucky dealt in volume, never haggling for the extra money Waylon said would have been the difference, the difference, quote, between subsistence and pleasure. Huh. The dates were booked long in advance, which could hurt you. Waylon said that little Jimmy Dickens had a big hit with the song May the Bird of Paradise Fly Up Your Nose. I remember that. And when that song was a hit, he could have been playing. You remember that one? Yeah. Dad, dad loved that song. Yeah. Well, once that was a big hit, he could have been playing bigger venues for more money. But instead, he was having to play the contractually obligated shows at lower paying gigs that Lucky had already booked him. Quote, by the time he was able to book bigger shows at a larger figure, the bird of paradise had flown up his ass, Waylon said. (laughs) (laughs) And bookers paid no mind to time or travel. The late country journalist Chet Flippo said it was not uncommon for shows on back-to-back nights to be 800 to 1,000 miles apart. And of course, artists were driving everywhere, so they'd barely have time to sleep or bathe even in between gigs. And that's also why so many of them got hooked on speed. I mean, they almost all of them were on pills. They needed something to keep them awake. Quote, 
they had time for a Coke, a candy bar, and a bump of speed before they hit the stage, and that's about it, Flippo said. <laughs> Even though he would be on the road a lot, Waylon still needed a place in Nashville to crash. Now, he'd gotten to be very good friends with Johnny Cash by this time. He was admittedly very starstruck at first as he'd listened to Cash's early Sun Records work as a teenager. They had so much in common, though. They both had dirt-poor upbringings that involved picking cotton. They both listened to the Grand Ole Opry growing up. They constantly cracked each other up, and Waylon said that when he met Johnny Cash, he basically met a soulmate. When Waylon went to see him play a gig in New Mexico once, they talked for a long time, and at some point, Cash mentioned that he was looking at moving to Nashville. He said that he was, quote, having trouble at home in terms of getting June Carter to marry huh. him. If you've seen Walk the Line, you know that, that but the, between Johnny asking and it actually happened was a, quite a long time. If, as I right. Yeah. Right. I consider Walk the Line one of the best biopics that we've had because I think we did an, when we did our month of Mercury, we did an entire like episode on Bohemian Rhapsody. And while it's enjoyable, it's not factual. And I feel like Walk the Line is a little bit more factual than other biopics right. out there. So that's just me. It, it is. It's very factual. Now it plays up the darker side of cash, which there certainly was that than it does the lighter side. But yeah, I don't, I don't I've never heard much talk about, things there being fabricated or timelines being condensed or anything right um, no, no that was pretty much on the mark from everything i've ever read so yeah but i want you to think about what i'm about to tell you waylon jennings and johnny cash discussed being roommates together in nashville T tj really quick hang on who who will thrill we've talked about this yeah. who was the the roommates that robert downey jr oh. and christian and, and kiefer sutherland kiefer sutherland in the, the 80s. The yeah. if you could vacuum up that carpet, you'd be rich kind of a roommate situation. I'm convinced their apartment is still on fire to this day. <laughs> and it never stopped burning. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was Kiefer Sutherland and Robert Downey Jr. rooming together in the 80s. That's, that yeah. sounds like Good a terrible place. idea. <laughs> okay, Jesus. well, imagine Waylon and Johnny in the 60s. It's yeah, it's about now, the same. About funny, thing, funny thing, Waylon actually knew June Carter before he knew Johnny. No kidding. Back in his radio days at KLLL in Lubbock, there was going to be a fair tour coming nearby with Ray Price, Skeeter Davis, and June Carter, and Waylon was enlisted that day to play bass for Ray Price. Now, the standard practice when you would have these concerts at fairs was to have artists go play live in several nearby towns, just a song or two in a restaurant, a bar, town square, whatever, to help promote the show and the fair. So, all of them went to Spur, Texas, which Waylon said was basically out in the desert. They had been promised that there was going to be a cookout and that hamburgers were going to be provided, but that did not happen. What they found was one mic and one amp set up in a corner of a room, and that was all. So Waylon was very much looking forward to eating because he didn't do that a lot <laughs> at this point. He was very hungry, and he was super pissed. He was super pissed that there were no hamburgers. So he took full advantage of the only thing that was provided, that being a table full of booze. <laughs> now, Waylon only got drunk a handful of times in his entire life. He didn't like to drink. He didn't like the taste of alcohol. But this was one of them. So he hammers down some of everything on the table. He then stumbles outside and passes out in the street. And everybody just decided it was best <laughs> to leave him there. So he laid in the street for several hours. When he came to... He was nose to snout with a giant black and white hog snorting in his <laughs> face. 
He screamed so loudly that it scared the hog, which turned and ran and slammed into the side of a building. Jesus. <laughs> he then rode back to back to wherever they went, completely hungover. Uh, but he said he loved June instantly. He said that she was as sweet and as funny as they come. Hmm. So Johnny and Wayland did get an apartment together in Nashville. Wayland's wife, Lynn, was making their impending divorce rather difficult, so he was still hiding his relationship with Barbara. She would stay down the hall, and his band had an apartment in the same building. He and Johnny had a deal, that being that Johnny would cook and Wayland would clean, but neither of them did much of either because they were frequently on the road, for one thing, and oftentimes when they came home, they would just crash. Wayland said, though, that Johnny was apparently a very good breakfast cook. He said that he would make bacon, sausage, pork chops, eggs, biscuits, and gravy. Comically, though, he did that while wearing his signature black suits, which would be covered in flour, baking powder, and grease by the time he was done cooking. <laughs> That's funny. Just picture. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Here's some bacon. And some pancakes. <laughs> and some pancakes. June and Mother Maybell Carter would come over once a week or so, and they would actually clean the place up. Waylon and Johnny both revered Mother Maybell, not surprising, and they behaved themselves around her, though Waylon said that she would drink a beer occasionally and she played a mean hand of poker. Hey, there you go. Yep. They did not behave themselves otherwise. Both were heavily addicted to pills by this point. Now, they both respected each other too much to flaunt it in front of the other, and Waylon said that if they'd ever pulled their resources on the pill front, that they would probably both have been dead, <laughs> which is probably <laughs> true. He said... He convinced himself he was hiding it because Cash couldn't have handled speed, but he figures that Johnny thought the same thing about him. Um, so they hid them from each other in their apartment. And the funny thing is, a friend of Johnny's once upon a time told him, hey, you know, a great place to hide your stash is inside your light switch. So like you take the plate off from around your light switch and, and you drop all the pills in there and then you screw it back on. So Johnny did huh. that at first, but then so he, he wants his pills and he goes and he unscrews the light switch plate and he realizes like, I can't get the pills because when you drop them in there, they go all the way down and I can't reach them. So he called me oh, and was like, God. how the hell do I get my pills? And he was like, oh. he said, oh, you have to knock a hole in the wall. Huh. So he, did. he kicked the hole in the wall so he could get his pills. Huh. He ended up modifying that and hiding his behind the TV. Waylon hit his in, in their little, little window unit air conditioner. Now, they both kind of knew that the other one had pills that was just unspoken. Waylon had a lot of nicknames for his friend at this point. He usually just called him Johnny. He said that if he called him Cash, that was another person altogether, and it's not one that he liked very much. Because, you know, you rage on pills for long periods of time and don't sleep the way these guys did. Sometimes you gets a bit dark, and, you know, Johnny could get that way, and Waylon probably could too. But if he called him Cash, that's when... Johnny was not in a good place, basically. And he was definitely in cash mode when he ran out of pills on one occasion, and he wanted some. And he decided that he was going to find Waylon's stash while Waylon was gone one day. So he tore the apartment apart, apparently looking everywhere except in the air conditioning unit where there were pills. And he found nothing. So then he figured Waylon must have them hidden in the new Cadillac that he just bought, which oh, was parked no. downstairs. So oh, Johnny went outside. And tried to open the Cadillac, but of course the door was locked. So he shattered a window. Uh, he he ripped out the entire dashboard. He busted the air vent. He tried to raid the glove compartment, and he found nothing. So now he's just getting madder. So in his rage, he is 
assume that Waylon must have hidden them in the seats somehow. So he ripped the seats. Oh, God. Looking for pills. Good and of course, gravy. there were none there. Dude, how about just ask? Yeah, that would seem much easier. Hey, TJ, sorry to interrupt. We are going to have to take a little break here for our sponsors. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Looks like we're back. We are back for more of Old Hoss himself, Waylon Jennings. Waylon's drummer, Richie Albright, said in one documentary that I've watched, and I've watched a bunch, so I don't remember which one off the top of my head, but he said, quote, there was never any man who could take as many pills as Waylon Jennings, except maybe for Johnny Cash. <laughs> now, Waylon said that he didn't even consider the pills an addictive substance. He managed to convince himself, maybe rationalizing a little bit, they were medicine, though he knew that he wasn't taking them for a prescribed medicinal purpose. He would take them for some extra energy back in his days playing JDs in Arizona. Because now remember, he was playing like four, five, six sets a day, six days a week at JDs. And then he would need them to stay awake while he was driving from show to show and partying all the time. Quote, I prided myself that I could take more pills, stay up longer, 
sing more songs, and screw more women than most anybody you ever met in your life, Waylon said. I could think of lots of excuses for taking them, but stupidity is probably the best one. At least he's honest. It's just yeah, I mean, yeah, not trying to hide how, how does he yeah. really feel? Right. He almost also certainly wasn't alone. Nashville ran 24-7, and speed was the gas that fueled that motor. Once he met and befriended the great Roger Miller, Waylon came to understand that. Now, often artists would go days without sleeping or without changing their clothes, so they would start to stink and they would start to look very disheveled. But he said Miller always looked great. And his secret was that he would wash his shirts in bathroom sinks. And I mean, literally any bathroom he could find. Somebody's house, hotel, gas station, restaurant. He would go wash his shirt in a sink. And he traveled with an iron so that he could press his pants. Now, Roger Miller would get totally loaded up on speed. And in the middle of a conversation, Wayland said that you might use a word or phrase that would light something in Miller's brain. And he would pick up a guitar and he would spontaneously sing a song on the spot, just craft it in his head right there. That's nice. that's how what a creative force Roger Miller was. But he said if if Waylon asked him to repeat it or he said, hey, let's write that one down, even a minute or two later, Miller would say, quote, damned if I know what I just sang. <laughs> now, on top of traveling with an iron to press his pants. Miller traveled with several large briefcases, all of which were packed to the absolute brim with pills, thousands of them. He traveled with hundreds or maybe even thousands of pills and briefcases. Now, now, TJ, re- really quick, um, forgive my ignorance. You keep saying pills. I don't know if those pills are the same pills that I, uh, because I feel like the pills that I knew were plaguing the South when I was a teenager are probably not the same pills. So forgive me, but what what are the pills? What what exactly are they? Well, well, we'll get into that in just a second. But basically, most of the time it was speed. Okay, so uppers. Um, uppers, yeah. And which okay. which pill was floating about during your previous stay here? Ecstasy. Ecstasy. Okay. And that right. was like a, that was a much later big big thing. Yeah, that was like ninety nine, I think. When yes. that really, I mean, I think it was like prevalent in the clubs in like ninety three, and then there was a big resurgence in like ninety nine to like two thousand and three. What about right. lewds? They have lewds yet? No, wait, uh, what? No, lewds. Lewds are just yes. No, yeah, they, yeah, they existed. No, they definitely existed for sure. Did they? I don't know how widespread they were, but yeah, oh, for sure. Quaaludes were around then. James Taylor was doing them. (laughs) Yeah, he was. (laughs) So Roger, they they had all these little names for him. His, you know, he would carry these big briefcases, had all these pills in it. He liked ones that they called Roger Cinco's that were part amphetamine, part tranquilizer, and had some vitamins in them. Oh, at least it has vitamins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like like C and D for, you know, all the sun that they're not getting. Right. Exactly. Waylon's favorite was called the L.A. Turnaround, so named because it was so strong you could supposedly take one, drive to L.A., then turn around and drive back without sleeping. (laughs) Um, There were speckled birds. There were desbutal pancakes, footballs, M&Ms, Johnny's White Crosses. They all had code names. So did, uh, so, so did ecstasy, like, cause like they were Pikachus and Skittles and like, they, they were all like these little names for like different kinds of pills. Right. Uh, yeah, no, that's like a, a thing because, you know, off market, they're like, cause you know, uh, Pikachus were apparently like 
the popular one because like it had the MDMA in it, but it also had, gosh, what would they speed or whatever? Like it would be, you'd be awake, but then you'd feel all like wobbly. Right. I, just, I don't even know if I just made that word up. Wobbly. Wobbly. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, if they're not on market, that's the way for them to tell what they are. Right. Um, now, Waylon said that at this point, Nashville ran on speed and there were two distinct versions of Nashville. There was the forced creativity, budgeted spontaneity, appointment artistry, or whatever you want to call folks who met in offices nine to five every day to write songs. That was part of the machine, the almost assembly line that Waylon came to hate. Songwriters wrote the songs, producers decided what songs an artist would sing and how they would be arranged. The same group of musicians would play on dozens of sessions a week, usually using these little charts to show the notes and the singers sang. That was it. Chip Flippo said basically artists were seen as serfs and they were expected to do what they were told and be happy with whatever they got for doing it. So that's what was happening, all that stuff in the big record company buildings, nine to five. However, the creatures came out at night. Aspiring artists would meet and hang out and play songs with one another when the sun went down, it's almost like they were plotting a revolution and one is coming. Mm -hmm. One of the places they gathered was affectionately known as the Boar's Nest. And it's funny to be called that because the Boar's Nest plays into something else with Waylon a little bit later, but we'll, we'll get there. Now, in the Boar's Nest is where we meet an unsung hero, would later be called Outlaw Country, that being a woman named Sue Brewer. The Boar's Nest was not a club. It was actually her apartment. That was a place that pickers singers and songwriters mostly those who were still sort of on the outside looking in would gather to swap pills and songs if you had a song you had a place to crash be fed and hang out brewer had come to nashville in the 1950s after a not named in Wayland's autobiography country singer got her pregnant and then left her she vowed revenge in an interesting way she told her former lover that she was going to come to Nashville and bang every single member of Grand Ole Opry the minute that they hit town <laughs> and would make sure that he knew about it when she did. That's quite a list. Quite a long list. To that end, she had a wall of fame featuring a picture of every country star with whom she had laid naked. I mean, it's always nice oh to have my. goals and, 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 you know, Stephen King, when he first started, he uh, put up every rejection letter that he ever got. And I feel like somehow that story ties in with the story that you just told. I, I don't know. I don't know how, but there you go. I don't think Stephen, it doesn't involve Stephen King being naked that I'm aware of unless he reads his <laughs> mail just differently than I do. Anyway, Waylon's picture, in case you're wondering, did not adorn the wall. Um, huh. He said that, that Sue was too good a friend for him to have that kind of relationship with. And I think after a while, that uh, goal of hers has kind of subsided and, she, it, well, you'll see, she, she becomes a very beloved figure. Although Waylon did say that her favorite saying was, quote, the only time I ever said no was when someone asked me if I had enough. Um, <laughs> nice. But what was she related she, to Mae West? Perhaps. She was supportive and a friend to many, and so were the other artists that were there. If you heard a good song at the Boar's Nest and you had any connections at all, you'd pitch that song for your friend when you had the chance. Occasionally, some, quote, names would wander in, like, George Jones, who actually hired her to manage a club that he opened later on. Little Jimmy Dickens, the great songwriter Harlan Howard, Mac Davis, people, Johnny Cash, people of that nature. 
Brewer actually worked at a bar called the Derby Club and wrote for a local music trade publication. Uh, Waylon's drummer, Richie Albright, once met famed producer Cowboy Jack Clement uh, in the stairwell outside of her apartment. He was a little starstruck because he was a big fan of Cowboy Jack, so he stuck his hand out and he introduced himself. Clement took his hand and shook it as he leaned over the rail and began puking. And this wasn't like a <laughs> one-off, like oh. he was, he, he had been drinking for like a long time and he just puked and puked and puked while he kept shaking. <laughs> Mostly though, the people at the Boar's Nest were folks still trying to make it like Mickey Newberry, Shell Silverstein, and their fellow named Chris Christopherson, who Waylon said was so shy that he barely spoke much <laughs> when he was wow. around him. Waylon would sometimes take Brewer's son Mikey to the store and buy him a toy. When Mikey's dad came walking up once, the, the four-year-old said to him, quote, you better not go inside. Waylon Jennings is in there and he'll knock you right back down them steps. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. And he probably would have. Yeah. Brewer, unfortunately, uh, fought a very long battle with cancer and she died in 1981. Waylon very quietly, provided both she and Mikey with free housing when she was sick. He Aww. established two scholarships in her name, and he hosted a televised tribute to her along with the likes of Willie Nelson, Harlan Howard, Hank Jr., Christopherson, Roger Miller, Mac Davis, and many others. And she was later inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, which is awesome. That is awesome. Aside from the Boar's Nest, folks would congregate at Tootsie's Orchid Lounge, which I think is actually still open, Waylon said that Tootsie herself might give you a big hug when you came in, but when it was closing time, she would literally blow a whistle and tell everybody to get out. And if you <laughs> didn't do so fast enough for her liking, she would come up and stick you in the ass with a hat pin. <laughs> Where'd she get there the was... hat pin? Those things hadn't been around since like the Victorian era or the Edwardian era. Well, this is this is Nashville in the 60s, so okay, probably yeah. still a thing. Sure, yeah. Yeah, all um, right. There was a cafe called Lime Balls that people would normally spill into very late at night and early in the morning. Nashville's haves and have-nots both rubbed elbows there. Waylon said someone like Marty Robbins, Roger Miller, or some big shot music executive or producer might walk in from time to time, and you kept your eyes peeled for those people. Waylon said he was sitting in a booth there working on a song called The Last Time I Saw Phoenix when a fellow that Waylon knew of and actually knows stumbled in half drunk and half hung over. He plopped down and asked Waylon what he was doing, and he told him he was working on a song, and the guy asked if he could help. And that was the extent of their conversation. The guy contributed part of one verse and all of another as he drank a couple of cups of coffee. Then he left. Waylon didn't run into that guy again for 10 years, and that guy was Tom T. Hall. What? What? Yup, the great Tom T. Hall. And there were a lot of places like this. There was one little joint that alternated between being a country music club and a titty bar. One was a place owned by a carny where they had lots of jam sessions. And then there were illegal all-night bars where you legit had to know a secret knock to get in. Nice. There was one that Waylon frequented, and he was shooting pool in there one night when he accidentally flicked some cigarette ashes down his jacket pocket. And his sleeves were soon on fire. So Waylon stood there flailing at the flames with his hands. He was so high, it never occurred to him to just take the jacket off. <laughs> he was Lord. trying to beat the flames out with his hands. <laughs> Theron Young got his head split open with a cue ball in there once. Oh, jeez. 
Waylon knew Farron, and he knew that Farron liked him because he said that Farron cared enough to tease him, often calling him, quote, a greasy little son of a bitch. <laughs> Term of, in terms of endearment, Farron Young, do y'all know the very famous Farron Young story? I don't think I do. Nope. Supposedly, he was playing in front of a packed 3,000-seat theater one time, and he was about to play a song called That Little Girl or The Little Girl. He had a single out by that title at the time and he saw this cute little girl sitting on the front row and he said hey sugar you want to come up on stage and have your picture with Farron Young I'm gonna sing my new song that little girl and you can be that little girl in the picture and she goes no no I don't want to come up on stage and he said oh now come on sugar don't be shy and he grabs her hand and she I don't want to I don't want to he said oh come on baby it's gonna be okay and he claims that at that point she spit on him so Farron whipped that little girl's ass in front of her mama and daddy and 3,000 people. <laughs> Good Lord. Wow. Consent is a thing, dude. <laughs> oh, God, that's awesome. No, it's um, not. It's rude. It's mean. And you don't whoop a kid. Look how I turned out. I got whooped. It messes that's a, that, with that, you. That is an argument against, sure. Yeah. Now imagine being whooped in front of 3,000 people. Unless you shouldn't have spent on Farron Young. What, do you, what would you have him do? Um, Not so Peter? Farron wasn't the only star that supported Waylon Porter Wagner. Carl Smith and other established acts both liked him and supported him. In general, something was bubbling just under the surface, but it would take a little while for it to erupt. Now, back to Waylon's music. I mentioned that he released three albums in 1966. His debut, Folk Country, hit number nine on the album charts. He also recorded the soundtrack to the movie, The Nashville Rebel. Waylon starred in that movie, saying that he wasn't sure how he got the part since he wasn't an actor. He thought his audition sucked. He was ripped on pills for the audition and for most of the filming, and he thought the end result was dreadful. That record, though, did reach number four on the country album charts, the soundtrack, and he had a top 20 hit on it with the song Green River. So we're going to hear that song right now. This one hit number 11 on the country charts. It's Waylon Jennings from his starring role, Nashville Rebel. This is the song Green River. Here's a song that uh, I wrote and I'd like to do, especially for my little wife, Molly.
Pretty. Okay, you made an interesting observation as we listened to that LD, and that was, "Ooh, tell me how I'm that, good." <laughs> that that somehow sounded older than the other songs. Sure did. Yeah, it sounds like it was done in like the 30s and 40s. Yeah, and again, obviously, that's not to be confused with CCR's Green River, totally different song. Uh, again, I mean, it's good, but it this still doesn't sound like the Wayland that we know. <laughs> this, we're not still not quite there yet. Not there. Nope. Uh, now, even though Waylon ended up being unhappy with the final product of the Nashville Rebel movie, having his son star in the movie was a big deal for William Albert Jennings, Waylon's dad, who came to Nashville for the premiere. Now, Waylon said that his dad had an unusually thick neck, and he was very uncomfortable wearing ties or buttoning even the top button on his shirts. Still, this was a big occasion, so he put on a tie. At a party after the screening, William was uncomfortable because he was unaccustomed to being around crowds, being from a tiny little place like Littlefield, Texas, and he tried to slip out. He was stopped by a fellow, though, who said, hey, you're Waylon's dad. So William ended up in a long conversation with that guy who was Tex Ritter. Oh, wow. Yep. Singer, actor, and father of John, correct? If I'm not mistaken, yeah. I believe that was he was John Ritter's father. Unfortunately... William passed away of a heart attack in 1968, or a heart condition, rather. Um, Waylon's dad was just 52 years old. Um, Waylon said that if his dad had lived just a little bit longer, he could have had corrective surgery that was very close to being perfected and would have been able to live to a ripe old age. He said he could almost hear his dad saying, quote, Waylon, you're in charge, just as he had many times when heading off to work when Waylon was a kid. Waylon said that he sort of passed out at his dad's funeral, and he was bothered by a lot of people who were asking him for autographs, which maybe don't ask a guy for an autograph at his dad's funeral. No. That would just be my yeah. Time and place. Yeah, time and place, folks. So anyway, it's a very sad chapter there. You know, Waylon lost his, his dad. When, and his, again, his dad was just 52. Waylon was finally divorced now from his second wife, Lynn, and he promptly married wife number three, Barbara Rood. Dude, stop it. Stop <laughs> it. Quit it. Stop they it. wed at the home of her parents, and Waylon said that she was shaking like a leaf as she walked down the aisle. He thought maybe she was nervous, but when she reached his side, she whispered to him, Gee, D, I've got to go to the bathroom. Which is actually different than what my dad said to me when I was walking down the aisle. <laughs> well, both of you were there on my wedding day, I assume, because, you know, you were my brother, and then the man that does this show is my husband, so both of you I were there. Helped. But dad met me up at that bush that I was hiding behind and he took me by the arm the music started to play and he goes well you need to when you get up there you need to tell Trey to hurry it up because in about 10 minutes the sky's gonna open up 
And, and that was yeah. always it. He was and right. Did, he was right. But like, so the whole time I'm like, Trey, can you can you go a little faster? It's gonna start raining, dude. Gonna and start the raining. Ducks. Oh, the ducks. <laughs> the ducks. The yeah. Noise. Yes. Uh, so now, I, I can I can sympathize with her. Exactly. Wayland said that their relationship was very spicy, but it was also short lived and tumultuous. <laughs> now, as I mentioned in our last episode. Barbara came from money. Her dad had invented a cotton picking machine, and I don't mean a cotton picking machine, cotton picking, a machine that picked cotton, literally, that yeah, made him a millionaire. He was worth about $30 million, Woo! which in, in mid to late 60s is, I mean, that's a lot of money now. That was insane wealth at that time. The guy loved his daughter, and he was willing to do anything for her. He essentially offered Waylon a blank check to quit music and make his daughter happy. That's all he wanted, his daughter to be happy. Oh, wow. Uh, Waylon turned that down, obviously. But Barbara didn't like living in Nashville. She didn't like being on the road, and she didn't like Waylon's job. She didn't like girls being down in front of the stage at his concerts. And she even got mad that he kissed his co-star, Mary Fran. Yes, that Mary Fran, the one who was the wife in Newhart, in the Nashville Rebel movie and suspected that they were having an affair. Waylon believes that she was afraid he was going to become a huge star and leave her for another woman. He said that she was actually a very sweet person and they would remain friends long term. But while they were married, he said he brought out the mean side in her. They argued a lot and Waylon didn't really know how to handle that. So he just wouldn't talk, which would make her even angrier. They were in a hotel hallway on one occasion when she was yelling, cursing and just really giving it to Waylon. She got so mad that she hauled off and punched him in the face. She then covered up her face, figuring that he would hit her back. But of course, Waylon did not and would not have done that. Instead, he said he imagined what would have happened if he had hit her. Her sprawled out on the floor with her long hair strewn everywhere like a big shaggy dog. And he started laughing, which, of course, made her even angry. We call that intrusive thoughts. <laughs> right. She got mad on another occasion and she took a guitar that Chet Atkins had given Waylon and smashed it against a wall. Oh, out of line. This was very unwailing since he normally just dressed in black leather and, and denim when he wasn't on stage. He, he would wear like the little, sometimes like the little Mexican tuxedo jackets and stuff mm -hmm. on stage. But Waylon was a, was a jeans and leather kind of a dude off the stage. But he said that Merle Kilgore convert, convinced him he needed to buy a nudie suit. You're familiar with the nudie suits, right? No. What is The kind of like... They're sort of like rhinestone studded full body suits. Grandpa oh, wore them all the time. Yeah. Okay. What? Um, what? Like, wait, like a Harlequin suit like Freddie used to wear? Kind of. Elvis would wear them. But it was like a suit kind of like suit. white yeah. suits with all the sparkly like rhinestones and stuff on them. Okay. So, some, <laughs> of them, some of them were one piece things. Some of them were sort of like suits where you would have, you would have pants and a jacket, but there was all bedazzled all the hell with like rhinestones and stuff it's called a nudie suit a, a nudie suit like porter oh. wagner wore them graham wore them lots of your country stars would would wear those especially at the time we're talking about but anyway so that's, it's a very unwailing thing to be wearing but he he did buy one and he wore it and the first night he wore it was also the first night that he took both uppers and downers together isn't that just what you call even apparently not he was so messed up <laughs> He said that Loretta Lynn, who was on the bill with him for the show that night, just walked him back and forth backstage for like an hour, just trying to bring him out of whatever he was in because it wasn't good, apparently. He said, quote, white crosses and red devils don't mix, which was the name of the two pills he took. Barbara had apparently hired a female detective 
to tail Whalen uh, on this particular night. His memoir doesn't explicitly say this, but I think Whalen had sex with her. What? <laughs> Whalen having Waylon having extramarital affairs. I am clutching my pearls. Well, I think he, but I think he banged the female detective that she sent to follow him. But he said that he kept dozing off while they were doing it because he was still so huh. messed up from all those pills. I mean, the the man obviously say what you want. The man was obviously smooth. Clearly, <laughs> the the man had a way with women. Let's just be honest. But when Barbara found out about this, she ended up cutting the nudie suit to ribbons with a straight razor. They separated, though they still actually slept together like for a while. And she would she would come over and they they'd hook up and she'd sleep in the bed and then she'd go back to her apartment or whatever. And that was the extent of the contact they would have. Now I mentioned that Waylon had three albums come out in 1966, including Folk Country and the soundtrack to Nashville Rebel. The other one was called Leaving Town, which had his first top 10 hit. That's what you get for loving me. I want to play a different song, though. Waylon co-wrote a song on the album called Anita, You're Dreaming with his old friend Don Bowman. Now, Waylon only wrote maybe a song or two per album. He wasn't like a super prolific songwriter, but the ones he wrote were really good. He said he actually didn't even fight for the arrangements and whatnot on this song. He just let Chet do it because he said he was too close to the song because he wrote this about Barbara before they even split. But you can tell from the lyrics, he kind of knew what was coming. So we're going to hear that one now. This is Waylon Jennings with Anita, You're Dreaming. Anita, come closer, stop crying and listen to me. I guess it's too late now, but somehow I must make you see What we thought was our world was only a dream world And we just can't go on like this Anita, you're dreaming of a world that can never exist Anita, it's over, there's nothing that's left now to say Anita, you're dreaming and I know it's better this way
And we are back. And I've got something to tell you. That sounded so much like Marty Robbins' El Paso. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Very similar. Yeah, I, I could I could hear that, actually. Now that you said yeah. it. I, did, I had not even thought of that. But I, I can hear that now that you said that. Absolutely. And neither. Now like, it's all I can like, hear. Like, vocally, not just musically, like, vocally, it sounded like Marty Robbins. That's a great point. I didn't even think of that. It's good. Because I like I like that. I like storytellers. But yeah, huh? That's okay. Yeah, there you go. Okay, bye. <laughs> That's my one for the list. So anyway, again, again, another good song, but we're still not hearing the fully realized potential of, of Waylon. This sounds a lot like a lot of the songs of this era, the kind of croonery kind of stuff. Although I, I did like the song. Yeah, I mean, I think the through line here is he sounds like other artists, which is right. again makes sense because he's up and coming and studying these people so sure um now Waylon was recording plenty of songs at this point he had three albums released in 1966 three more in 1967 and three in 1968 so he released nine albums his first three years on rca he was primarily primarily working with chet atkins as his producer at first chet allowed Waylon to bring his road band into the studio, but then he got nervous. This isn't how things were done in Nashville. Studio musicians played in the studio, and road musicians played on the road. Road dogs didn't adapt quickly to change, in Chet's opinion, and were not as precise and perfect on command as studio players. But that's what Waylon wanted, and he was having trouble getting that through to Chet and others. He wanted things to be a little rougher. He didn't have any desire to produce these pristine recordings. He, he wanted stuff rough. He, he even said, look, the guys that were, you know, I was playing in the studio with, they were better musicians than me and better than my band, but I didn't care. We had a vibe and a, and, you know, and a, and a groove that we were in. And it, it was rougher, but that's what he wanted. For a while, Jerry's guys like Jerry Gropp and Richie Albright would only be used sparingly. And Waylon said that hurt them. Like, I mean, it hurt them that they, you know, that they weren't able to play on these records with Waylon. He had, Amazing musicians at his disposal, guys like Pig Robbins, Jerry Reed, Floyd Kramer, and even Ray Stevens. Oh, nice. Oh, God, yeah. I love Ray Stevens. Oh, okay. So speaking of Ray Stevens, not to get way too off the the mark, but I just watched a reaction video of someone who had never heard of Ray Stevens. Oh, God. And it was delightful to watch their <laughs> reaction because they had never heard... they know what ray stevens was and uh, it was delightful if i can find it i'll tell you who did it but it's like somebody's squad reacts but uh it was it was adorable to watch them i keep forgetting yeah. how long he's been in this business it's crazy oh yeah, yeah. and uh, i'm gonna go ahead and tell you guys okay it is rob squad reactions okay i, I think i've seen some of his before yeah and he like it's uh I don't know if it's always the same guy and girl, but they they really liked him. But yeah, no. And I'm going to go ahead and say this to our our rock and roll heaven fam right now. When Ray Stevens goes, he's mine. And if either one of you try to take him, I will leave you in the dust. There will be there will be stains on the ground from where you used to exist. OK, I even try. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with this arrangement. Um <laughs> But yeah, so think about that. So you know, Ray Stevens was at this point like a session player. I also learned today, as we record this, watching an interview with Chris Christopherson, that the first version of Sunday Morning Coming Down was recorded by Ray Stevens. Oh, what? Wow. No and kidding. Christopherson said he loved the version. It wasn't hit because the record company thought he should be doing you know the novelty songs and not songs like Sunday Morning Coming Down. But he said he absolutely loved Ray's version of it. Nice. 
it's hard to not love Ray Stevens, though. It really is, yeah. Exactly. He's but got. So think about that. You've got guys like you know Pig Robbins, Jerry Reed, great guitar player, obviously, Flo- the great Floyd Kramer, and, and Ray Stevens as your studio musicians. However, I was surprised to know this not in the the Nashville Studio Musician Society at that point was not. I mean, not there was Tom McGinnis or Manfred Mann or any other member of Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Yay! All right, Tom. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGinnis, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Mann reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. It's just, it's it's like heaven coming it down is. on my ears and just being Very like, so. here you go. Thank okay. You. Anyway, Waylon really didn't like the idea that his guys, the ones who were out there starving on the road with him and by his side through everything, were being brushed aside for these studio musicians. He also didn't like how people looked down their nose at what were called, quote, side men. It was also awkward at least then Waylon said, to walk up to somebody like Floyd Kramer and tell him that you didn't like the way he played something. You're talking to this masterful piano player and you walk up and you're like, that ain't really how I heard it, Floyd. <laughs> Yo-yo yeah, Ma, let me play, tell you how to play that cello. <laughs> right. A very, a very, it's very, but that's very awkward for any new artist, I would imagine. Now, Waylon loved Chet and said that he was a wonderful person. He respected him and he tried to fit into the framework that had been carefully built, but said his songs weren't coming out the way that he envisioned them. Atkins, for his part, said he was just trying to make records that would sell and that DJs would play. Being on RCA, by the way, also meant that you could only record in RCA studios, and Waylon wanted to try some other venues, but Chet told him, A, that he couldn't, and B, that there was no real difference in studios anyway. In retrospect, he said it was amazing that Chet spent as much time working with him individually as he did. RCA had a huge roster of artists, and he tried to be there for all of them, and that was as a producer, a friend, a counselor, and a therapist. When Skeeter Davis and her husband were on the outs, she confided in Chet as much as she recorded anything with him. Don Gibson, who had hits like Oh Lunk to Me, was usually hammered and often too messed up to sing. Chet, very kindly and thoughtfully, would just say Don was, quote, having trouble singing, and he would postpone sessions for him. On one occasion, however... Don was drunk and literally laying on his back in the studio floor, trying to sing up to an upright six foot microphone. He is so drunk. He can't literally can't stand up. He's laying on his back, like screaming up at a microphone that's six feet above his face. I mean, come on. Who hasn't been there? Chet said, quote, we'll get together another time, Don. Very polite. (laughs) So as he walked out of the studio, uh, he encountered Don's then girlfriend. And he said, quote, Don's not straight tonight. We can't record. And for some reason, that completely set her off. And she slapped Chet Atkins in the face. Now, Don had stumbled out of the studio at this point and, and saw what was going on. And he figured that he had to defend his woman's honor or whatever. So he charged. He threw his guitar down on the floor. And keep in mind, he's so drunk he can barely stand up. But he gets right in front of Chet and he does this weird drunk-ass karate pose. And he screams, I'll kill you. I really hope it was in that Chet voice. What, I just oh, hope it was you? in that Chet voice. Did, Chet had no idea what to do, so he just kind of stood there. But luckily, everyone calmed down. Everyone, that is, aside from some RCA employees, who eventually chased the woman down the hallway screaming, you bitch, you can't hit Chet <laughs> I think she, she can, and I think she did. Yeah, I think I she did. Can, we, can we just get a count on how many guitars have been destroyed? 
like how much property damage has happened in this episode alone? Because we've got the walls, we got a Cadillac, we got at least two guitars that I've been counting. A nudie I suit. mean, yeah, nudie suit. Like how much property damage? Someone get those numbers. It's quite a bill we're ringing up here. Waylon was changing the sound of music in Nashville a little bit. He was playing some 12 string guitar on his records, the little bit that he was allowed to play at this point. And he gave Chet a 12 string, which started to work its way into some recordings. Now, when Waylon played some 12 string on someone else's session, he realized that while he wasn't doing the things exactly the way he wanted to, Chet actually did give him a bit more leeway than he was giving others. He said most artists had no input. They were literally just a voice, and Chet and studio musicians did everything but the lead singing. Chet apparently liked that Waylon had ideas and usually came with songs of his own or ones written by others he was interested in cutting. Still, Waylon was taking the advice his friend Buddy Holly gave him about fighting for artistic freedom to heart. Quote, he just knew the records he was making were kind of sterile, said songwriter and longtime friend of Waylon's, Harlan Howard. Now, Chet didn't like drugs, and he did not take drugs. And about the only time Waylon said he saw Chet mad is when Chet knew he was high. Quote, that was like sticking your head in a lion's mouth, Waylon said. Drugs were becoming much more common, though, and Chet tired of having to deal with both Waylon and others while they were fried. Quote, my relationship was always great with Waylon when he was straight. He always told me he loved me, but when he got drugged out, he didn't like me very much, Atkins said. Atkins also didn't like having to run every aspect of almost every artist's sessions, and he didn't like some of the boss duties of having to tell people that their songs weren't good or that they were singing flat or that they were going to be dropped from the label. So he would soon step away from all those duties to go back to recording himself. Waylon said that he made some good records with Atkins, the best ones of his early career, and that he loved and admired him until the day Atkins died, but that he still wasn't being afforded the freedom to do things totally his way. The producer-artist relationship would end in 1970. In 1968, Waylon's third marriage officially ended, though it unofficially had actually ended the same year it started in 1967. Waylon's last act as Barbara's husband was to drive her home to Arizona. Another important relationship had ended. Waylon's life was already crazy, but now there were no guardrails, no barriers, and nothing to slow him down. Quote, then went wild, he said. Like what you've heard so far hasn't been. So really think about yeah. that until next time. We're going to hit the pause button right now. So thoughts? Uh, I don't want it. I don't want it. It's like, okay, at Carowinds, there's that stupid ride. Was it Snoopy or? That was Disneyland, wasn't it? No, no. The one that we rode with my brother. The Top Eliminator? No. The stupid Snoopy one. Oh, the Scooby-Doo? One that my... Was it Scooby-Doo? I hated it. Or was it, it. like the little, like, little kitty ride where you're in the little things that are just going around and around? Yeah, it was the most terrifying thing ever. Yeah. The scary ass thing. Okay. Like, this is a child's. It's kind of like that, but I hate it even more because like it's off the rails already and i know that he's not even on his like two thousand dollar a day coke habit yet and so it's like you're how is your liver i just want to check in how is your how is your liver is it's it funny okay it's, it's funny you should say that but we'll we'll get there in the next episode you know we've again if you kind of look back episode one there was some wild stuff in it but it's kind of early life and whatnot and then episode two the day the music died and that was incredibly sad and then you know episode three was light and so there was some craziness in there, but it wasn't full throttle. This episode was nuts. And I mean, I'm just telling you, 
the slap nuts commences next week in, in, in ways you can't possibly imagine. And it, and it never lets up again. Oh, oh good. You, what you've heard wait. so far, and I'm, I'm not even, I'm not even saying this just to sell the sizzle. What you've heard so far is nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. This is nothing. <laughs> okay. That's going to be a thing. Within um, the, the first page of episode five, that will be readily. <laughs> I mean, give, give the people what they want, I guess. Absolutely. But anyway, okay. so thanks for listening, everybody. We're going to let LD kick the socials out, and then we're going to close out with one more song. Yeah, why bother anymore? <laughs> All right. Our Patreon, if you think we're doing great, you want to give us money, that's awesome. You can do that. Patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Don't even bother going to the Twitter. The Twitter is rock and roll LT, but like why? Uh, Instagram, rock and roll heaven LT. You can also find all of our fun facts that we post on TikTok there as well. But please check out our TikTok at rock and roll heaven pod, our Facebook rock and roll heaven pod as well. Again, thank you, Thea, for running that. She is doing an amazing job. And uh, yeah. yeah, we love her for that. And our website, Oh, you almost thought I was going to say it, but I'm never going to say it. Aaron said it like this year, and that's the only that time hilarious. you get it. That was it. That's all you get. And you can also email us if you really love us or hate us, whichever one. You could do that at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. And I will get to say, you guys can't say much now but as soon as we figure it all out i'll be able to tell you guys but you guys know that i've been the associate producer for the podcast basic we're about to go on hiatus but i just got the gig producing another very cool podcast so i'm actually going to be the producer producer for that podcast so that's really exciting news so as soon as i can tell you guys more about that i absolutely will because i am not above selfish promotion other than that Mr. Will, do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience? Oh, no. Aside from I can't wait till next week. This is the stuff we've been waiting for. So <laughs> bring <laughs> on the cocaine bear, folks. I think we're getting there. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for checking out this episode. Please make sure you check out next week's episode, which will actually be our Slap Nuts episode for the month of April. And then after that, we will get back into the Slap Nuts Crazy Life. That is Waylon Jennings Part 5. And uh, I'm going to head in the reins back over to my brother to wrap up the episode. Thanks, guys. All righty. Well, we're going to finish up with a song that I believe came out in 1968. This would be Waylon's biggest hit to date. And it would actually be his biggest hit for a couple of years. Uh, reaching number two on the country charts and because we didn't have one i'll throw in a quick fun fact fun fact, fun fact. it was kept out of number one by harper valley pta by Jeannie c riley which was yeah. written by a man yep. which was written by tom t hall who tom t hall yeah who, yep. who so, Waylon wrote a song with at that line balls cafe yeah see this, it's a circle we're making a circle yep yeah the circle has been unbroken so this is the first song where vocally to me, Waylon sounds like the Waylon you know, and the sound of the record sounds like maybe Waylon might have won a little bit of an argument in the studio. I'll let you be the judge of that. We're going to close out this episode of Rock and Roll Heaven with Waylon Jennings and Only Daddy That'll Walk the Line. Good night, everybody. Night. Everybody knows you've been stepping on my toes And I'm getting pretty tired of it You keep a stepping out of line And I'm messing with my mind If you had any sense, you'd quit 
Ever since you were a little bitty teeny girl Said I was the only man in this whole world Now you better do some thinking Then you'll find you got the only daddy That'll walk the line I keep her working every day All you wanna do is play I'm tired of staying out all night I'm coming unglued from your funny little moods Now honey baby that ain't right Ever since you were a little bitty teeny girl you Said I was the only man in this whole world Now you better do some thinking Then you'll find you got the only daddy That'll walk the line Packing up my clothes, nearly everybody knows that you're still just a putting me on. When I start a walking, gonna hear you start a squawking, and I'm begging me to come back home. Cause ever since you were a little bitty teeny girl, you said I was the only man in this whole world. Now you better do some thinking, then you'll find you got the only daddy that'll walk the line. You got the only What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at IntoHistory.com.